Thanks everybody for joining us today. Uh, this is another part of the tax exempt fundamentals series. Today we're talking about taxes for tax exempt organizations. I'm Kendi Osman. I'm a partner in the tax exempt practice at Ropes and Gray, and I'm joined today by Aaron Kucher. Aaron is a managing director at Grant Thornton in the nonprofit healthcare and higher ed practice. Um, we have a lot of content to cover today. You will receive the slides uh, from the BBA after the webinar, so don't worry about scrambling to make notes because you'll have all the content on the slides um, after we've concluded. Um, there is a Q&A function in the webinar. That is the way if you have questions that we'll be able to answer, we'll try to save some time at the end, notwithstanding the fact that we have a lot of content uh, for questions. We may also be able to answer some on the fly uh, in the middle of the webinar, but that is the, the way to ask us questions. So we're going to dive right in. I will cover the agenda and the first set of topics, then we'll switch to Aaron, and then I'll wrap up with some more um, exciting stuff about excise taxes. So you may ask why we're having this webinar at all, uh, aren't these entities that we're talking about tax exempt to begin with? That's true. Uh, we're talking about 501c3 organizations that are generally exempt from paying federal income taxes, but uh, notwithstanding that, there are some taxes that tax exempts are required to pay, and those are the ones we're talking about today. So I will cover federal income tax focusing on the unrelated business income tax. We will flip over to Aaron, who will cover some Massachusetts-specific taxes, specifically the Massachusetts UBTI, the unrelated business tax property and sales tax, and then we'll wrap up with a couple of excise taxes. So I should mention at the outset that we really are focused on Section 501c3 organizations, so charitable organizations generally. We're not talking about you know, business leagues or social welfare organizations or other types of tax exempts, although some of these rules apply to them as well. Our focus is really on the 501c3 organizations. Um, we aren't going to cover the special excise tax regime that applies to private foundations. There's a whole other part of the fundamental series that talks about private foundations, and we're not going to cover the special endowment tax that applies to large university and college endowments. But we're going to try to cover most of the other topics that we think are relevant here. So we'll dive right in and start with the unrelated business income tax, which is often referred to as UBIT. So a key requirement for 501c3 status, really the most important one, is that the organization be organized and operated exclusively for tax-exempt purposes. But we know from the tax regulations that exclusively actually means primarily. So there is some amount of activity outside of tax-exempt activity that is tolerated um, and still maintaining tax-exempt status, and that's called unrelated business activity. Now, we often get the question, I'm sure Aaron has gotten it many times too, if we engage in too much unrelated business activity, can we lose our tax-exempt status and tell us how much we can engage in and still maintain tax-exempt status? 
but we don't have a great answer to that question. The IRS says there's no numerical percentage of unrelated business income that's too much. There's no number we can give you. It's all based on facts and circumstances. So short of losing tax exempt status for doing too much of something that we can't, we know it when we see it, you have to pay tax on your unrelated business taxable income. So the basics. So a tax is imposed on the unrelated business taxable income of a 501c3 organization. This is UBTI. UBTI is gross unrelated income minus the applicable deductions that are directly connected with carrying out the trader business. Now, there's a, a rule that some of you may have heard of called the UBTI siloing rule that basically requires that each um, set of each business activity the unrelated business income be calculated separately with respect to each of those activities. So you can't just get a bunch of losses from a whole bunch of, of different unrelated businesses and lump them all together to reduce income from more successful unrelated businesses. You have to do it on a business by business basis. And there are very detailed regulations about this rule that were released a couple of years ago. So once you've calculated your UBTI, the general rate that applies to the organization based on its type of entity is imposed. So if it's a corporation, it's the corporate tax rate. And if it's a trust, it's based on the trust tax rates. Um, the original purposes of the UBTI provision were really to create a level playing field for tax exempts and for-profit organizations to prevent unfair competition. It kind of it, it evolved from NYU Law School owning the Mueller Macaroni Company and Congress getting involved over the macaroni monopoly and enacting the unrelated business income tax so that NYU and others, other tax exempts that actually ran businesses would have to pay tax on them. So three components of UBTI, you need to have all of them in order to have taxation as a result of an unrelated trader business. First of all, you have to have a trader business. Second, it needs to be regularly carried on. And third, not substantially related to the organization's tax exempt purposes. So we'll talk about each of those three elements. So the first one, trader business. Um, basically, the, the statutory definition is very broad. It's any activity that's carried on for the production of income from, from performance of services, sale of goods. Um, it's generally something that looks like a business. Uh, very important, the IRS looks to profit motive whether the organization is intending to generate a profit in carrying out the activity is really the keystone of determining whether you have a trader business. If, you, if, an, if an activity is generating persistent losses, it may not be considered a trader business at all. So secondly, the trader business needs to be regularly carried on. So you look at the frequency and the continuity of the, the business activity. If it's really sporadic or intermittent, it's probably not going to be considered a trader business, like something that's an occasional event or a one-time transfer. And then the, where the rubber really hits the road and where most of the analysis occurs is in this third prong, which is not substantially related to tax exempt purposes. So you're trying to show that in order to avoid UBTI, 
you're trying to show that the activity is actually substantially related to tax exempt purposes. And there, you're tr you need to demonstrate a substantial causal relationship between the business activity that's being undertaken by the organization and the accomplishment of a tax exempt purpose. So very, very important point here is that just using the funds that are generated from the business activity and applying them to good charitable purposes is not sufficient for that to be that prong of the test to be met. So this is the Mueller Macaroni Company example. It's, it's not the destination of the income that's relevant. It's the actual activity and carrying it out in a way that is going to further the organization's tax-exempt purpose. There's also this concept of fragmentation, which is that you could have a bunch of activities that are carried out as part of the same trader business, some of which are UBTI generating, so some of which are unrelated businesses and some of which are related. So for example, if you have an organization that has a journal that is an educational journal and subscriptions to the journal are sold and the journal includes wonderful articles that are about research and it, it helps to further the education of those who read it. That's fine. The sales of the journal could be good related income that's not taxable. But if the organization sells advertising in the journal, that's almost always going to be considered an unrelated business activity because advertising is generally considered to be unrelated. So you can have the same sort of business activity, but some can be unrelated and some can be related. The other example about the in the slides about the monastery and the caskets, that's in the tax regulations where the tax exempt monastery sells caskets to its own denomination, that's okay. But when you start selling outside your denomination, it's, un it's an unrelated trader business. It seems like a bit of a fanciful <laughs> example, but this is the sort of thing we encounter with, for example, a healthcare organization that develops a wonderful product that is used within the system. And they find that it creates great efficiencies and they have multiple entities within their own system and they charge a fee within their own system to use this great system, this great new process that's been created. That's fine. That's a related business. But once the organization says, oh, this could be great to sell to other organizations that are similar to ours that might want to use this same process, that becomes an unrelated trader business. So there are some pretty important exceptions to the definition of trader business that take you out of UBTI and the taxation on UBTI. Um, volunteer exceptions. So if the business is carried on entirely by volunteers, it's just not considered a trader business. Very important, the convenience exception. This is used a lot in the educational and hospital context. So if the organization is carrying out a business activity primarily for the convenience of its members, its students, its patients, its officers, or its employees, that's not considered a trader business for purposes of these rules. So the good example would be the hospital cafeteria. 
And then the sale of merchandise where substantially all of which has been donated to the organization is also an exception to the definition of trade or business. Like the it's called the thrift shop exception, essentially. And then we have the very important exclusions from UBTI. So like many tax rules, the UBTI rules have lots of exceptions and lots of exclusions in them that are important to understand because they can be quite meaningful. A very big exclusion to UBTI is passive income. So many types of income that are generated from investment activity are simply ex excluded from UBTI. It includes dividends, interest, royalties, rents, annuities, and most gains from the sale of property other than inventory. So it includes even short-term and long-term capital gains. This is very a very important ex exclusion from UBTI. But then there are a bunch of traps for the unwary. And the intention of this slide isn't to scare people, but rather to point out that if you hear about certain things when you're advising a client or you're looking at documents for a tax-exempt organization, just lodge, try to lodge in your head that there are certain things you just need to, if you hear about them, follow up on, because these are Thing, these are elements that can create UBTI um, where you might not anticipate it. The first big one is debt. So if there's any borrowing, any debt financing of an asset or in a transaction, that should be a red flag for, you know, we need to determine whether we could possibly have UBTI. Because if an organization borrows and purchases something that produces income, even if that income would have been a great passive source of income, um, like interest or dividends, if there is borrowing that occurs to obtain that asset in the first instance, that transforms that otherwise delightful passive non-taxable income into taxable UBTI. So for example, organization buys stock, borrows to buy the stock, the stock produces a dividend, dividend that would have ordinarily been excluded from UBTI is suddenly UBTI unwittingly. There are exceptions to this rule, specifically in the university space around debt finance real estate, but just red flag, if you have debt, if you have borrowing, think about UBTI. The next one is joint ventures. So if the tax exempt organization is entering into a partnership or an LLC, particularly with a for-profit party, that should be a UBTI flag because it's possible the partnership as a flow-through entity will um, generate operating income that could be UBTI to the tax exempt party. Um, also, especially if the partnership uh, borrows then we go back into our debt financing issue. There is a specific revenue ruling that addresses UBTI in the context of partnerships that's on the slides and that will be in, in your materials. Next one is S corporations. So, you know, we, we still see an S corporations kicking around out there. Um, it used to be that 501c3s were not permitted shareholders in S corporations. They are now, but the downside is that if you are a 501c3 S corporation shareholder, then all of the income that is generated to you from the S corporation is unrelated business income. 
And when you sell your S corporation interest, that is also unrelated business income, which is a very nasty result. Next one is if you have a controlled entity. So if a 501c3 has a greater than 50% controlled entity and this, the parent receives certain types of passive income, interest annuities, royalties, or rents from the controlled entity, that can also result in UBTI. There are some exceptions to the exception, but that's an, an issue flag. This happens when there's a rental arrangement for space or there's a license for the use of the name, for example. Um, and then the last one I'll mention as a trap, potential trap is rents or royalties that ordinarily are good passive income, not UBTI. If substantial services are provided in connection with those things, then that can generate UBTI as well. So that's something that can be planned around, but is good to know in advance. So the last topic on UBTI is, is reporting. So UBTI is reported on the IRS Form 990-T. If an organization has gross income of $1,000 or more, so gross, not the net amount, um, which is what UBTI is, uh, from a regularly conducted trader business, then the organization does need to file the Form 990-T. Like the Form 990, the Form 990-T is a publicly disclosable document um, and must be made available to those who request it and is often shows up on GuideStar where the other returns are found as well. Um, it's a little bit hit or miss. In terms of disclosure, it is an important note for organizations that have their 990-T requested that only those attachments, schedules, et cetera, that actually relate to the calculation of UBTI are required to be disclosed. A lot of times the 990T, especially for large organizations, will include voluminous attachments that go into great detail about the organization's investments that frankly, they would prefer not to disclose. And oftentimes a lot of those attachments don't need to be disclosed. So that's just a, a tip to be aware of. So with that, we will pivot to state UBTI. Erin. Great. Thank you. So yeah, so Massachusetts um, does require the taxation of unrelated uh, business income. There are over 40, I think it's around 42 to 45 states that require some form of taxation of unrelated uh, business income in, um, in the state. And they do vary as to rules. For example, on the UBIT silo rule, Massachusetts does conform to the siloing provisions. Um, but as I'll say in a caveat throughout this description of Massachusetts rules, um, states very much maintain their autonomy in tax rules. And you'll see that um, states will differ into their conformity both in the adoption of the silo rules and into the adoption of net operating loss rules as to whether they conform federally or have their own rules and they might even be a combination of one or the other. Um, we'll also see that as we cover some of the other state topics. Um, so Massachusetts does conform for silo so you're going to um, aggregate all your positive silos um, and report that in your mass on uh, your Massachusetts Form 990T. Um, generally, for organizations, you'll be taxed 
um, with those um, activities. So for, for example, um, I was gonna say advertising, but that's a little bit loaded um, as to where to cite us that. So I'll use the classic example of a hotel um, that's located, that's a little more simple for uh, unrelated hotel operations located in Massachusetts would be an activity um, that would have nexus. Um, and then um, the investment income apportion to Massachusetts with um, an allocation of, of expenses. And there are potentially credits that an organization could also be eligible for um, that are that are state-based um, credits. Um, the uh, allocate the investment income apportionment can become quite complex when an organization has a large income investment portfolio, um, for example, um, holds a lot of limited partnership interests. Um, so um, that's, you know, something to, to watch out for and make sure it's being done correctly. Um, each state is different in this, but Mass has what, what is referred to as a throwback rule. Um, so if a passive income item, for example, if you are in a, uh, in a partnership um, that generates um, interest and dividends because you have debt fine financing on them that are unrelated business income and they're not uh, citus to a state in the disclosure, you would throw those back um, to Massachusetts um, for taxation. Um, this is fairly new um, and more just a tactical issue that the M990T is, is like the 990T subject to um, universal electronic filing. Um, Massachusetts does not, um, starting with this year, accept a paper form um, it's a little tricky in Massachusetts. Um, they don't use, uh, they first right now they're not eligible through a software system. Um, so Mass Tax Connect, which is um, a, a Massachusetts website in which all Massachusetts um, taxes are administered for um, corporate and other type of entity type pass taxpayers um, is utilized for this purpose. Um, if you're uh, working with an organization, you're going to want to make sure they have a Mass Tax Connect um, account um, so they're able to do this. It's also where things like sales tax and other types of taxes are administered um, on the corporate level. Tax rate is 8%. And then just rounding out, these are state-specific rules. So for at the state level, at net, net operating loss, carryover is 20 years forward and capital losses can't be carried forward or back. So those are state-specific. You might notice those don't conform um, to the new, the new federal rule, which is an exception on top of an exception. So I won't get into with CARES Act and all of that. But it's important when you're working with taxpayers who have UBIT, um, to examine their net operating loss situation, both federally and at the state level, because you have um, often a one shot um, to waive the carry back. Um, so you got to get it right the first time. So just make sure that you're looking at um, the rules at the federal and state level um, when you review um, in the taxpayer, which, um, you know, in COVID times, um, there were some substantial losses coming through in the operational standpoint. Um, so with that, I'm gonna to move to the next slide. Um, so that, so from a, the, again, the rules I'm talking about are corporations. This just the takeaway, this is due dates. 
Um, most of my taxpayers will align. Um, you have a little time after the federal filing, but will align um, to uh, the the deadlines um, that uh, fall for their federal returns when they complete their filings. Um, there is no extension form necessary to be filed unless you have a payment due. So again, it's important to look to see if the taxpayer has payment due to minimize um, potential penalties and interest. Um, but for a while, there was a required extension without even payment to, but math has eliminated um, that requirement. Um, I will just note here, this slide does note the $456 minimum tax that's due for corporate taxpayers. But as noted, M990Ts are not subject to a minimum tax. So a taxpayer can file um, it generally without owing taxes um, to capture losses. And uh, next slide. So that, as I know, that was all for corporations, which most of your organizations are probably going to be, um, if they're organized in mass, a chapter 180 type corporation, and then they'll be taxed as a corporation in the state of, uh, in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Um, there are some um, organizations that take the form of trust. Um, the most common that you might encounter are 401A. These are pension, profit, stock, bonus type of retirement vehicles. Um, Massachusetts doesn't subject them to tax. It's awesome. You know, it's one, it's one less state you have to file in. Um, again, these tend to generate UBIT through investments, through limited partnership investments. Um, so you just want to make sure you're, you're knowing what state's subject um, that income to tax. There are some um, exempt organizations that take the form of a trust. Um, I do see it in the private foundation space, or there are actually some very large um, um, organizations that have chosen the trust form. MAST has a different form for that, the 990-62. Um, I think the most important takeaway from this is that charitable amounts reduce taxable income. So I've seen some very large trusts that generate UBIT um, that have been able to do a full offset um, of their of their tax due. So it's an important consideration. It might be something to think about when you're thinking about forming a new organization in the Commonwealth as to whether even though tax rates are higher at the federal level, whether it might be advantageous um, to form as a charitable trust for Massachusetts tax purposes. Um, and uh, again, this, you know, just goes back to making sure you know what you're filed. I have inherited some private foundations and they've been filing for corporations at Massachusetts forever and federally. I'll say that I want to see the documentation on formation and it's a big old trust document. So just make sure you know um, what, um, what the actual entity type is and don't take for granted it's been done right um, in the past, especially some really old private foundations. Um, next slide. LLCs, um, you know, if, if they're filing as a 501c3, they're deemed corporate for federal purposes and will be deemed corporate for Massachusetts purposes. So you'll go back to that M990T filing. Um, there can be, and this is probably a whole nother topic for a whole nother fundamentals, LLCs can qualify as exempt organizations, but when they go to taxation, they go back to the C-Corp formula um, for that. And it also just notes um, exempt unincorporated associations um, are, are taxed um, 
are taxed under uh, with uh, the LLCs exempt from taxation under the code. Um, I'll be frank, I don't run into unincorporated associations that much. Um, I would suggest for liability, <laughs> they incorporate. Um, so I think with the next one, uh, we can move forward. Um, and this is just, again, a, a more detail around uh, those filings in that point around the charitable amount um, set aside, um, being able to provide a full offset on taxable income. All right, so we're out of the income tax world and we're gonna move into real property tax exemption. So you probably have seen this, it comes up every once in a while, um, particularly um, as um, revenues tighten in for cities and towns, um, that cities and towns, um, there is an exemption in Massachusetts statute um, for charitable um, property. Um, and um, these slides go into some detail and um, I believe they were developed by Barbara Hunt. So I want to give her proper credit and due um, and are a great resource for kind of the historic of that. Um, you know, there, there are specific rules. So when working with an organization, um, making sure that you're looking at the form of organization. So for example, um, the, the um, property itself must be owned um, by, uh, the court must be owned by the corporation um, that not a, even a single member LLC, which um, strategically might run into some issues for some organization because um, for property holding purposes, um, it might outweigh the property tax considerations to put it in a single member LLC. So something, again, from a planning aspect, um, when evaluating a real estate transaction is kind of the end goals and, and balancing um, those as well with the real property um, tax exemption. Um, going to the next slide, um, again, an initial application is made. Um, this provides the outline in the city of Boston um, for the um, obtaining the exemption, which is the first step um, in, in the property um, um, exemption consideration. It hasn't come across as much in Massachusetts, but in many states, um, the exemption of property has become an extremely hot topic, especially as it relates to healthcare property um, and whether it is um, really serving um, a charitable uh, need um, and whether the property should actually be exempt. Um, um, not something, again, I've seen as much here, um, but, but something to consider as these supporting documentation is placed together to obtain the exemption um, uh, for, for the property. Next slide. Um, again, more detail around um, uh, receiving the charitable exemption and what constitutes the charity. Again, looking at the specific factors under the statute as opposed to just thinking um, that 501c3 status is, is sufficient. I think we can move to the next slide. Um, and then this just notes, um, looking at it that some some case law around looking at um the the factors and um and reviewing the property and again more detail around that it benefits the public good and this is really where that issue has come up with with some um, private parties versus benefit the public good in the health in the healthcare um in the healthcare space um, and a lot of look at that um, 
at that purpose and charitable uh, means. I think we just can keep moving through those. And then uh, some specifics for conservation um, organizations um, as well. Okay, so what is exempt? All personal property, real estate owned by the charity and actually used for charitable purpose. So this is important once the initial application is completed, just making sure that the real property is being occupied in that, in that manner. That um, if it's being used or it changes use, um, that that that's being accounted for um, on a yearly basis. And I think I think one of the next slides covers that reporting um, on a yearly basis. So we can move forward. So you can include charitable property organizations with the intention of future charitable use leased to individuals, property owned by a taxable that is leased to an occupied. Uh, by a charity is taxable. So you don't just get it for it. And then there's very specific rules around religious organizations. Um, uh, so houses of worship, parsonages where um, the where the priest or minister or, or other religious may reside, um, personal property, um, but again, non-religious purposes, non-religious portions of the building um, may still be subject to tax. So once approved, there's an initial application that's done. Um, file form 3ABC by March 1st. Um, so 3ABC um, needs to be received. So um, uh, it's a lot of times it's still a very manual process. I've had the runners around on March 1st, making sure that all towns where property or, or, or personal property and real property is held receive this. Um, in a large organization, this might be multiple um, towns and you want to make sure you keep track of where items sit. Um, so you you might have cars in a certain, um, you know, in the town of Waltham, but you might have buildings in Boston. Um, and so it's making sure that you have some inventory of that because it's 3ABC will ask you um, for um, information about the facilities and the property held by um, by town. Um, the 3ABC does require the attachment of the mass PC and 990 or 990EZ. Um, I've always included prior years. I've never received any pushback from a town and include using prior years um, data. Again, the, a lot of these are very manual process um, and you're just going to a window and dropping them off. Um, so it's really going to depend on a town by town basis. Um, the form itself has no instructions to give you some feel as to the, as to uh, kind of it's it's much more kind of the each town adopts how they want it, how they like to receive things. Okay, next slide. Um, and again, this is just a great takeaway. So I wanted to leave it in there to just make sure that you're maintaining that exemption, that, you're ca that the organization is calendaring um, the filing that it needs to make on a yearly basis. Okay, next slide. 
Okay, so you're exempt from property tax, that's great. Um, but there is the issue of payment in lieu of taxes, pilot payments. So what the town is saying to um, it, it tax exempts is that you are exempt, but we expect you to contribute um, to your local area. And uh, many, many towns, including the city of Boston, will provide for a suggested um, payment of, of tax uh, of, of, of the contribution. Um, it is not tax. It's a payment in lieu of tax. Um, so, uh, for example, Boston's pilot payment is 25% um, of the property tax without their buy be due up to 50%, which can include community benefits by the exempt organization. Um, you can actually go on the city of Boston's website uh, if you're curious, they maintain data on both the cash and non-cash um, contributions. Most organizations do not meet what they what's considered uh, by the city the pilot obligations. Um, you know, I recently the Worcester Telegram and Gazette recently had an article on focused on um, reassessing pilot payments by local universities and hospitals by the city of Worcester. Um, it's really going to become an issue as revenues start to tighten up, um, particularly in the Commonwealth, where a lot of the property is owned. Um, by not-for-profits, um, there is a continued focus on pilot payments. Um, there was some legislation in a prior year um, that really went nowhere to make certain pilot payments mandatory, which pretty much transforms them into a tax. But um, but I, it but it pretty much stopped. The only other note I'll make on pilot payments is for organizations that filed the 990. It can be considered a grant. It's a voluntary payment, um, and uh, you know it can be given some visibility um, as is a community effort um, on the organization's form 990 so they can you know get some goodwill um, out of the payment um, as well uh, next slide sales tax so mass has a really great sales tax provision um, for exempt purchases by a 501c3 charity or exempt from state sales tax if certain requirements have met. This is a very generous provision compared to other states. Again, if you're doing operations in other states, it might not be so generous. So you want to review on a state by state basis what you're eligible for for a sales um, tax exemption. Um, but on the other side of it, it just like any other um, organization that sells good, a charity might be responsible for collecting and remitting um, sales tax. So um, that goes back to that comment I made around Mass Tax Connect. Many um, exempt organizations already um, are on Mass Tax Connect because they have um, uh, requirements to collect and remit sales tax. Next slide. Um, this just provides some details around um, the sales tax exemption itself. Um, again, this is 501c3 focused and um, 
and the organization just has to make sure it's filing for its sales tax exemption certificate um, to receive the exemption. And a lot of times who you're purchasing from are very familiar um, with the process and will ask to see um, your certificate if you've ever been asked to, you know, go to the local um, BJ's Wholesale Club for a school, you've probably received the um, certificate um, to go ahead and take with you on a very uh, micro level. Uh, next slide. Um, this just goes into it. You have to have your sales tax exemption. You provide the vendor with the completed form and the vendor um, you know, will keep a completed documentation of, of the sale. And it is important to note that the purchased property is used in the conduct of the organization's charitable purpose. Um, for the organization. So that might come up if you are engaged in an unrelated business activity, um, if, the pro if the purchase is actually subject to exemption. Um, but most purchases, you know, will, will be. Um, this just walks through attaining the ST2. It's really just informational. Um, the only thing that comes up is sometimes when you're trying to juggle, when you've just gotten your application for exemption and you're looking to get your sales tax, um, at the same time, that's the only um, issue. Sometimes that can just kind of cause some pain because you don't already have your IRS determination letter. Um, you can get the intern certificate and it's valid for 10 years um, as well. So again, a, a great benefit from the Commonwealth for charities. And I think we can go to the next slide. Um, this just notes that if you use an agent, again, this is something if you have a large construction project, um, the, the, you know, they're going to be familiar with the, with the, um, with the, with the, with what they need to do, um, and the, get the information. So you can still basically still get the benefit of the exemption, even if your builder is the one making the purchases. Going back to sales tax, you know, again, no blanket, no blanket exception for sales by charities. If you, you have a, a store or something like that where you're selling items, this might come up in a hospital gift shop, a university school store, um, you're going to be subject to um, collection of the tax. Um, there is this provision, um, which again could be a whole other um, presentation called Wayfair, which looks at um, the taxation of items when you're a seller based in Massachusetts, your requirement um, to collect tax on goods sold outside the Commonwealth, even if you have no physical presence um, in the state. Um, that's a pretty complex um, analysis and it really depends on whether to engage in such analysis really depends on the level of activity um, that the organization um, is engaged in. So if you have an organization who might be a, a bookseller or something um, like that or does a lot of outside sales um, to, to, third, to third party a school store um, that you actually operate that's doing, you know, everybody wants the t-shirt and you're and you're selling outside the, the, the state, it might, it might be something to look at in more detail. Next slide. Um, there are some exemptions, sale of clothes, up to 175, sale of tickets, sale of publications, ca casual and isolated sales. So it really is, sales tax collection is really when you have that, um, 
that operation that's consistent and ongoing. Um, again, this is just some more details on those exemptions um, in, in more detail. Um, but, you know, if, if someone's running a fundraising activity, um, you know, a, a silent auction for the local school, um, that's going to be casual it's casual sales and not subject um, to um, Massachusetts sales tax collection. And just give some additional details on that, too. Charity auctions, um, again, is they are specifically um, exempt from self-tax. Go to the next slide. Yeah. All right. Okay. Thank you, Aaron. Back, back to me. We're going to flip back to federal. So we're going to, to conclude with a discussion of a couple of key excise taxes that are relevant to 501c3 organizations. The first um, is the intermediate sanctions rules. Uh, and then the second is the executive compensation excise tax. So the intermediate sanctions rules are in section 4958 of the Internal Revenue Code. And basically an excise tax is imposed when there is something called an excess benefit transaction between a section 501c3 organization and a party called a disqualified person. And I'll define disqualified person uh, in a little bit but to cover what the tax is. So the tax is imposed on this insider, the disqualified person, and it's 25% of what is deemed to be the excess benefit, which we'll talk about in a little bit too. And the tax increases to 200% if this excess benefit is not corrected. This transaction isn't basically unwound within a specified period of time. Now, the tax is not, very importantly, it's not imposed on the organization itself. It's primarily imposed on this insider, this disqualified person, but it can also be imposed on organization managers, usually the board of directors or trustees, who approve the transaction knowing it is going to confer an excess benefit on a disqualified person. That tax is 10% of the excess benefit and it's capped at $20,000 per transaction joint and several liability. So what is this excess benefit transaction? It is a transaction where an economic benefit is provided by the 501c3 to a disqualified person and the value of that benefit provided to the insider exceeds the value of the consideration that the disqualified person insider provided in return. So who are these people, these disqualified persons? So it's anyone who currently or within the past five years was in a position to exercise substantial influence over the affairs of the organization. It's a facts and circumstances test, um, but there are some de facto categories of disqualified person who are set forth in the treasury regulations, specifically voting directors or trustees, the organization's CEO, the organization's COO, uh, the organization's CFO. Those are all de facto DPs, disqualified persons. 
if they don't hold that title, that doesn't get you out of this. It's anyone who is carrying out those functions that would traditionally be carried out by those positions. Importantly, disqualified persons also sweeps in family members of all of these people with a specific definition in the code and regulations, as well as organizations that are more than 35% controlled by any of these individuals, either you know, individually or together with other people who are considered disqualified persons. So it can be, for especially for a large organization, it could be a pretty big group of people and entities. So what are some of these excess benefit transactions? But far and away, the most common one is payment of excessive compensation. So if you're paying too much to a person for the services that they're performing for the organization, it can also come up in the context of assets that are purchased from disqualified persons or services that are purchased from disqualified persons. For example, the, the trustees construction company is hired to build a building at the university and is overpaid. And it can also come up in the context of assets sold to disqualified persons for less than fair market value. Now, it's a, this is a very hopeful procedure that is set forth in the Treasury regulations that we always recommend organizations use when they are considering a transaction with a disqualified person and in situations where compensation is being paid to the high-level individuals of the organization. It's a safe harbor procedure that, if used, creates what's called a rebuttable presumption that the that no excess benefit transaction has occurred. So a rebuttable presumption that reasonable compensation has been paid. What does rebuttable presumption mean? Well, it means that it essentially shifts the burden of proof to the IRS to show that the compensation was in fact unreasonable. So if the organization were to get audited, it can show the IRS we followed this procedure and then the IRS has to get its own experts in to show that, you know, to prove the point that this compensation was in fact unreasonable. So it's a very protective procedure to use and it's pretty straightforward. It, it only has a few elements. One is that the uh, transaction or arrangement is approved in advance by members of a board or committee of the organization who have no conflict of interest with respect to the transaction or arrangement. The body approving the arrangement, considering the arrangement, has to collect and rely on comparability data. So information about comparable transactions or comparable compensation arrangements. That doesn't have to be that you hire you know, an expert compensation consultant or an expert appraiser. It can be the collection of, of publicly available information. And the deliberations and the decision around this transaction or arrangement needs to be documented in contemporaneous minutes, including specific elements that are set forth in the Treasury regulations. So it's a pretty straightforward process. There is the opportunity for some footfault in this. What we most commonly see is the documentation of the meeting didn't include all the elements that are set forth in the Treasury regulations. Um, the wrong body of the organization reviews the comparability data. So this is the way that happens. Um, 
the, the most common that I see is the compensation committee does all the legwork around the executive's compensation arrangement. They hire an independent compensation consultant. They review all of the data. They really look hard at the numbers and they look at all of the information and determine based on this, that's reasonable. And then they make a recommendation to the full board that has the final authority. And the full board says, okay, we take the recommendation of the compensation committee. That doesn't satisfy the safe harbor procedure. So the safe harbor procedure has to be undertaken by the body with the final decision-making authority with respect to the arrangement. Now, is it helpful that the compensation committee went through all of that process? Sure, it creates a good record, but it doesn't actually satisfy the safe harbor. So you don't get that rebuttable presumption of reasonableness. Another footfall, this seems obvious, but it actually comes up quite a bit, that the arrangement wasn't approved in advance. So the contract is entered into, and then the organization decides, oh, we should really review that to make sure it's reasonable. Well, it's good to do that, and it's helpful, but it doesn't satisfy the safe harbor procedure. And then the last one is not considering all elements of compensation. So this comes up in the executive compensation context, where, for example, only the cash compensation is looked at or only the base salary is looked at, as opposed to looking at the base plus the bonus, the potential bonus opportunity, deferred compensation arrangements, benefits, housing, um, anything that is considered compensatory it needs to be included and considered as part of this process. So shifting from intermediate sanctions to this more recently enacted excise tax, Section 4960, this was enacted at the end of 2017. And it is an excise tax on large amounts of compensation, essentially provided by tax-exempt employers. So it's imposed at the corporate tax rate, the 21% excise tax. This one is imposed on the organization, not on the individual. And it is an excise tax that is imposed on remuneration that is in excess of a million dollars, so just the amount above a million, and on a group of payments called excess parachute payments. So this tax applies to payments made to what are called covered employees of tax-exempt organizations. That group includes the current five highest compensated employees and anyone who ever met that definition in a particular tax year since the tax was enacted. So once you are a covered employee, you're always a covered employee. In some years, you may make under a million. Some years, you may make over a million. But if you make over a million and you ever were a covered employee before, even if you don't meet the top five for that particular year, you are swept into the tax. Um, So what's remuneration? for purposes of calculating whether this $1 million threshold has been exceeded. It's wages. It's also vested deferred compensation under Section 457F, um, whether or not it's paid. So even if the person doesn't have cash in hand, it does exclude amounts paid to a medical professional for the performance of medical services, also to a veterinary professional for um, the performance of veterinary services. But other than that, it, it pulls in a lot of a lot of the funds that are paid. 
Another kind of nasty aspect of this excise tax is that it also applies to compensation paid to covered employees of a tax-exempt organization by entities that are related to the tax-exempt organization, which is determined by a control relationship, either controlled by the tax-exempt organization or that control the tax-exempt organization. That could be other tax-exempt organizations that could also be taxable entities, such as for-profit subsidiaries. It also includes, um, as related organizations, supporting organizations um, of the tax-exempt organization, as well as organizations that are supported by a supporting organization. So it's important when you're looking at these types of questions to not just look at compensation where you've got a system, not just look at compensation that's necessarily paid by a central organization, but potentially by related entities in order to calculate whether the the threshold has been exceeded. And then if there is compensation by related organizations, then they bear their pro rata um, portion of the tax. And I mentioned also that this excise tax applies to the remuneration above a million dollars. It also applies to what are called excess parachute payments, which are essentially severance payments that exceed a certain amount, generally three times base uh, base pay uh, over a look back period. So that is the, the very high level summary of the 4960 tax. There are extremely detailed regulations about the computation of this tax and the definition of related organizations and various exceptions that were released a couple of years ago. And importantly, the IRS has been very clear and Treasury has been very clear that the existence of this tax does not change the intermediate sanctions regime that I just talked about. So just because an organization is required to pay this tax for paying compensation in excess of a million dollars, for example, that doesn't mean automatically there is an excess benefit transaction or that unreasonable compensation has been paid for purposes of those rules. I would just say I have seen a lot of organizations, there's some very special timing rules that apply to what year compensation falls into, especially when it involves separation it's a trap for the unwary going back to going back to the beginning and um, organizations can really get caught in a million dollars isn't what it used to be. Um, they can get caught in this tax very quickly. Right. And there's no inflation adjustment, I don't believe on this. So, mm-hmm. you know, a million dollars today, it's a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. But if it's still a million dollars 20 years from now, you could wind up sweeping in a lot more people to this tax with the rule around once a covered employee, always a covered employee. So that is the end of our formal presentation. It's 4.58, which is, we're doing pretty well on timing. I don't think we have any questions in the Q&A. So like I said at the outset, we are going to send our slides. Um, BBA will send them out. if you do have any questions afterward, Erin's uh, and my contact information is on the front page of the slides, and we'd be happy to chat with you.
Beautiful. Seeing no questions, Eva and Maya, let's say thank you to our attendees and thank you to our speakers. And as can be already noted, we will follow up with these slides. Have a good one, everyone. Bye. Take care. Thank Bye. you. Thank you.